0: Now, here we go, Indie Game Business! Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. what is up everybody oh yeah discord i gotta get in the discord stage uh my name is indy and this is indie game business and we've got our special guest here <laughs> jay Powell. <laughs> he's a special guest i'll jump into discord right now um i didn't mean to i got i got sidetracked but anyways we're talking about we're talking about publishers we're talking about uh, warning signs. That you are might be working with a shady publisher.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. So, uh, folks on Discord, if you can't hear me or I'm getting echoed, tell me because I seem to never get these settings right. When it
0: looks like your mic is muted in Discord. All right. So, there we go. There we go. <clears throat> oh, all
1: right. So. Where do we want to start? All right. So, one, I want to be upfront. This is not a torches and pitchfork session. We're not naming names in here. And, you know, we're going to ask you not to do it either. Um, But we are going to be talking about a very serious issue. And that is, you know, how you know if you're like going down the route of working for or looking at one of these shady publishers. and it's very important that we understand that there's a difference between a shady publisher, sketchy, you know, immoral, illegal publisher, and one that's just not good at their job. Just because they uh, aren't necessarily the best publisher out there doesn't make them sketchy or illegal or anything like that. Um, it's like everything else. There's 700 some publishers out there that we track. Some of them are going to be better than others. Um, But we're going to go through some of those warning signs as well as, you know, take questions uh, from you all as well. So if you are out there listening and on or watching on on Twitter or YouTube or wherever, and you've got a question, just pop it in the chat. We will get to it live on the show. Looks Uh, like
0: there's only one or two in Discord. (laughs) Yeah, there's like already a whole page of questions in Discord. (laughs) That's right. like wow y'all are gonna make my job super easy today i think we could our only podcast for the rest of the year we could do it three times a week could be about publishers Oh well yeah true.
1: that's that's very possible um but it is i mean it's one of those things that we see um and and we got a comment already calyx and we actually had a game dev discord yesterday talking about that since we were all scared of like ending up in serious trouble feel free to pull the questions from that and pop them in here i hate i missed that that would have um that would have been good but you know these are it's a serious thing and unfortunately a lot of developers are susceptible to this because you want your game to be seen you want your game to be published and and sometimes that excitement over having someone interested in this thing that you've created Overbears that whole cautionary side of wait a minute do I need to be doing this? Uh, and every now and then we see publishers pop up in, in in chats or on articles or you know what have you where they're doing sketchy ass stuff. Uh, so what we want to do today is just go through you know some of the things that to, that you want to look out for. So before we get too too far into the questions, here's some basics. So one, you know, we always, always, always preach to our developers, whenever you're approached by a publisher, you always want to go and ask, you know, some of the teams that they've worked with, how did, you know, the process go? Um, One of the quick things that you can do is simply go on Steam. You know, if a publisher has an extensive list of poorly reviewed games, and they just come out one after another and they're continuing to come out that's a, a sign if it's generally simply a bad publisher <laughs> they're going to market themselves right out of a, the store eventually because they're not making any money and they can't afford the overhead and they're, they're going to go away but with a lot of these publishers that we see you know that are doing less than legal stuff in the background what you will see is a big old long list of mixed to poor reviews on steam. And that should be like one of your very first warning signs, because let's face it, you don't want to, you know, sell your game to a publisher who doesn't know what they're doing in the first place. So that's one of the first things. Another big one is poor communication. And let me preface this by saying, for those of you who are, are new to the show or don't know my background, I've been doing business in the industry for 25 years. I've pretty much seen it all in one way, shape, or form. I have worked as a publisher, I have worked as a developer, as an agent, and for the last 10 or 11 years, I've run a consulting company. We have clients who are developers and publishers and tech companies, and so there's there's no bias here. You know, I've got you know clients on both sides of the table. But one of the things that immediately starts, you know, question marks going off in in my head and it it shouldn't anyone's is when the the communication is poor. You know, it's one thing if everybody's busy and we are seeing, you know, in the covid post ish covid world, these deals take longer to do, you know, for a variety of reasons. But you're simply because everyone isn't responding to your email within like two hours. That's not necessarily the bad side. It's when, you know, things go for days and weeks and you've got basic questions and they're not getting answered. You know, that's when the issues come in. Um, We always say that these, you know, relationships never get better. You know, if it's sketchy and, and, confusing and, and just poor communication on day 1 is going to be like that for the rest of the, the situation. It's not like someone's over at the publishing company is going to immediately flip a switch and become way better to deal with because it, I mean it, it's just not. So if you are you know constantly being put off or you don't seem like it doesn't seem like you're any importance to that publisher whatsoever th- that's a warning sign because if they don't have time for you during that you know, pre-signature deal where everyone's getting to know each other and getting to understand the game better and everything else. It's it's a very big red flag that they may just not care about the game in the first place. Uh, once you are in some contract negotiation, if you ever have a company tell you that you don't need a lawyer to look over it because this is just boilerplate, or for some other reason along the line. Major red flag. You should always have an attorney look over this stuff. And I know uh, attorneys aren't always cheap. You don't need one on retainer for the entire time, but you do need to have an attorney look over you know any agreement that you get from a publisher the or any agreement you get from anybody, quite frankly. The ability to hide one or two little sentences in a contract that completely
0: changes the tone of the entire contract is very easy to do. Or an Oxford comma. I was just reading an article about that. There, there was an Oxford comma, and it changed everything.
1: Oh yeah, I mean what, what, that's even like more subtle than I was thinking. But you know the the you know little things in there like the IP ownership or you know when money is actually due. There's a lot of very easy ways that you know companies can turn what is what looks like it face level, a normal contract into something that is, you know, not at all normal. And keep in mind, these are, you know, I've took some quick notes and and jotted down some of these things. These are all based on my experience. I have actually seen all of this shit happen, you know? And so I'm sure there's going to be other folks, you know, in, in comments and and out there listening that have other examples as well, but everything that I'm going to go through here. Is, is something that we have seen firsthand. And I, I know companies that have tried to do this. Um, another like easy up there with look at the Steam reviews or look at the game reviews for that publisher's contracts. Another very easy one is bad PR. Google the publisher. If you Google the publisher and there's a load of threads about how, you know, they ripped off another company or how they're bad mouthing, you know, somebody that's a very very good indicator of you know what working with that publisher is going to be like we have seen very very recently you know ceos of publishers come out and make a comment on twitter that did not play well to twitter and they were immediately booted from their own companies because that's how important image and PR is to a publisher these days. And so if you come across someone, you know, and for whatever reason, it's just line item after line item of they've done something, you know, atrocious and and offended developers or or seemingly screwed them over and, and that sort of stuff, big warning flag, you know, because every publisher out there needs to be very aware of their, you know how they're seen in the industry because you know at the same time there's a lot of you know competition for publishers there's a lot of competition for good games too you know we scout for publishers i see how quickly some of these good games can get picked up and you can't be successful running around out there if you are constantly having bad pr or bad press in the um in the industry so all right dan i'm going to let you take control of, of questions because otherwise, you know, my, my full-blown ADD will kick in and I'll get distracted left and right. So just jump in
0: when we so have just jump in. Okay. I was just posting some stuff. Okay. Uh, well, let's do, let's hit the first question. Here we go. Um, this is from, I'll post it up on the screen here. New one. There we go. We don't want it to scroll. There we go. And... Here we go. What is the average deal you assign with the publisher? How much, how much, what percentage did they get? Um, All right. So we're going to go to our
1: patented, it depends answer. There's, and I saw that article by the, the, whoever it was that maybe it was a lawyer that went through like 30 different contracts and and assigned, you know, this is what you should be getting. That's a load of shit. I mean, to be blunt. Because every single contract is going to be different. Every single deal is going to be different. What percentage should you get? You should get the percentage that you feel is fair and it works for you. Don't go out there trying to be that company that, you know, has a mandate of, well, we have to get 80% of the revenue and we want $500,000 up front. While there may be a publisher out there willing to do it. Don't, Get yourself wrapped up in what other companies have in their contracts. Don't compare yourself to other games and other developers. Every single situation, every single publishing deal is different. Now, obviously, there are limits. If you know everything starts flipping around and getting turned back to the way it used to be, where you know developers would get a 15% royalty on their own work and all this other stuff. Yes, that's bad. But Every deal has to be looked at individually. And this is the way that I always, when we're working with our clients, you know, this is the way that I look at these deals. Is it a good fit for both parties? Are you going to do better off with this publisher and make more money than you would have on your own? That's what I always preach and always recommend. Yes, there are plenty of articles and, and conversations out there about this is what you should get. No, it's a, you know, depending on your situation, you could come in and one publisher offer you 300 grand up front as an advance and a smaller royalty or rev share on the back end. You could have another one come in and say, look, we can't do that much money up front. We're going to give you like 50 grand, but we're going to guarantee you 250 grand in marketing. And they have a complete marketing plan laid out and it's something they have obviously put time into and they know what they're doing. And then you could have a third one where it's somewhere in the middle. All of those options for a specific developer are are viable. It just depends on what your personal situation is. You know, do you need the cash now versus in the future Um are you willing to take a little more of a risk because it looks like the company that you're working with really understands the marketing for your your type of game and is really going to get behind it? There's just always, there's always too many variables in there to really sit down and say, this is what they should absolutely get. The general rule, though, is the more a publisher puts into the development and the budget of the game overall, the more that they're going to want on the back end. Um, Now, if it starts going below 50-50, you know, to you as the developer, that's when you need to start getting a little bit worried, unless there's some very specific clauses in there that says, okay, you know, this is how much it's going to make, or if the publisher funded the entire thing, you're probably not going to get 50-50 day one, but it really just depends. I mean. I can make arguments going in many, many different directions.
0: So sorry. <laughs> no, and and just because we're talking about shady publishers or whatever doesn't mean they're all shady. I mean, publishers no, no. offer a lot. They offer experience. They offer, you know, the the knowledge of how to get into different game platforms or a different uh, console platforms and you know, they have ins and they have experience in social media and all that marketing knowledge. A lot of people just say, oh, I wanna do it myself, but then you gotta stop with your game development and you gotta focus on social media, you gotta do marketing and you can't, you can't just like, oh, I'm gonna market my game and not know anything about it. Well, you can, but you know, publishers really help out big time.
1: I, I just noticed that despite the fact that I told you I was going to do the announcement in Discord, I typed it all up but never actually hit enter. Um,
0: so sorry. I that. put an announcement in there. I got it.
1: I, I saw it. I was like, oh, well, Dan realized that I completely missed that and he's on it. Um,
0: Next question. Because we got it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Night Wolf. Uh, how can you gauge a new publisher's skills, whether brand new to publishing or adding publishing as a secondary role to their business? And then the little next part was shady or unexperienced? Good question.
1: Thank you, Nightwolf. So the, whether they're brand new to publishing, it's, it's almost like the exact same way a publisher is going to look at you and see, okay, are you worth dealing with because you're brand new to development? Look at the people involved the beautiful thing about this industry is for all the billions and billions and billions of dollars that we generate and all the, you know, hoopla that we get that we're bigger than movies, whether or not you count hardware, whatever, it's a very small industry. We all know each other. And that holds true for publishers, developers, marketing teams, what have you, you know, the big, you know, joke around our office is that there's nobody that we can't find in two phone calls you know, because it's a very tight knit industry. And that's why, you know, going back to that whole PR side, you know, if you burn bridges in this industry, it will absolutely burn you out in the long run. And it long run isn't even that long within like a couple of years, most likely. So with everyone knowing everyone and being such a tight knit community that is very open about talking about a whole lot of different things. If the publisher's brand new, And just for the sake of reference, over the last two weeks, I've seen three new publishers pop up, either brand new publisher, or they are like you said, you know, they're adding publishing to something that they were already doing. But publishers come and go very, very quickly in this industry, at least a percentage of them do. So if they're new, look at the people behind it and and go on LinkedIn or Google them or whatever, and see if they have publishing experience, you know, themselves as individuals. If so, there's your basis. You can look at that. You can make some phone calls and see who that person works with later on, that sort of stuff. Um, can you, can you pop that one back up there, Dan? What was the second half of that?
0: Uh, the this- Second, I can't because I. Oh, uh, are they second half of it? Was whether brand new to publishing or adding publishers as a secondary role to their business?
1: Okay. So, another trend that we've seen a lot of in the last like four years specifically are indie devs turning into publishers because, you know, they've gone out and they've had success as, you know, with whatever game it is. And then they want to build on that and, you know, help other indie devs. Nine times out of 10, it's fine. You know, there's going to be this situation where sometimes, you know, the studio got a little bit lucky and didn't really have to go through all the stuff that, you know, successful games typically go through to be successful. And they may be underestimating the amount of work it takes to actually go full bore and, and publish a game. But it all comes down to the people at the end. Um, If they're new or if they are, you know, even new to publishing or even adding publishing to something else, you always still want to check in and see who is behind this, who is actually going to be doing the work. Find out who your producer contact is going to be at that publisher, um, because that's going to be very, very important. You can have wildly different experiences with a publisher between two different developers simply based on who their contact was and who their who their producer was at the studio I mean at the publishing level um so it's it's a lot of the same it's it is difficult to say okay you don't if you don't have that big old long list of sketchy ass titles that the publishers launch it's a little harder to go okay let me see where, where this has gone but always upon always you know you can check the individuals behind it And if you do that and they don't come from the industry at all, there's your reflect. Let somebody else be their test case. Don't, don't, no need to risk it. Um, But yeah, look,
0: look at the individuals behind everything. All right. Let me pull up one from, this is from, from uh, Twitch here. What are your thoughts on working with agencies versus devs doing their own biz dev publisher hunt? What are you laughing at now?
1: Because the first seven or eight years of my career, I was an agent. And Uh, even now, our consulting firm helps developers find publishers. So, John, I am a little biased, but I'm going to say, uh, yes, I do believe there's value in it. But like everything else, too, it's a matter of look at the people involved. The company that I started in the industry... With was called Octagon Entertainment, and we were straight up agents. We did everything from, you know, country by country distribution deals all the way through to you know full blown multi million dollar development. You know, I did the first publishing contract for Starbreeze back in the day. I did Paradox's first distribution deals here in the U.S. You know, we worked with CCP when Eve first came out. The reason that we ended up transitioning the company and turning it from an agency into a publishing company is because the phrase agent got such a bad name from other companies out there. And to this day, there's still three or four that, you know, are really good. And and I absolutely recommend, you know, folks look at, you know, one is my good friend, Ed. Dilly over at Fog Studios, but you've also got DDM and and several other studios that agencies that have been around for a long, long time. They know what they're doing, they're very reputable. The problem was, you know, we would see situations, and we still see this. This has not changed. You know, now they're, you know, more consultants and they may call themselves agents, but whatever. You know, it would be something along the lines of a producer let go from a publisher or they left a the publisher and they feel we he, that person knows everything that they need to know and they're going to become an agent and they just don't do a good job. And, you know, signing with an agent or a consulting firm, and this is one of the first things I always tell developers that are working for us, just because we're going to be pitching this to publishers does not guarantee you it's going to get published. You know, I, you can't ever guarantee somebody. And if someone comes to you and says, work with us and I guarantee you, we'll get you a publisher. That's a giant red flag because unless they are the actual publisher that they're going to sign, there's, there's no way to go in and and absolutely guarantee anything like that. Um, It all comes down to, you know, the companies and the publishers and what they view the game. We always tell our clients, we can get you in front of everybody that is a good prospect for this title. I can't guarantee you anyone's going to take it though but we're going to try our ass off. You know, one of our recent titles that, that has been signed by a publisher, we spent over a year, we probably sent it out four or five different times, you know, that had, you know, different iterations of of the development and, and new features added and things like that. So there is, again, I'm biased, but yes, there is a good value in doing that and working with studios, companies like that, if they're good at what they do and One of the main reasons is time. It takes a lot of time to go out and identify these publishers, send out all the information, and then follow up with them and stay on them because it's not like you could just send it out and instantly five or six publishers are going to, you know, be all excited and knocking on your door. That's not the way it works. Um, The other, as as a side note, this is a comment that I've seen a lot you know when we've been approaching developers on behalf of our publisher clients the studio will tell us well we're already talking to several publishers and we don't want to talk to any more." never do that talk to everybody talk absolutely because you never know when a deal is going to blow up and not happen and if you set your sights and you're completely tunnel visioned on one or two different publishers if that falls through you're starting over at ground zero on everybody else so don't ever do that. Uh, but yeah, I, I recommend it as long as they are good and reputable at what they do.
0: Oh well, there we go. That's a short answer. That's the short answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so here is a question. There's a bunch of questions. So, um, and some of them got cut off because there was too many words. Uh, lucky. Should I avoid working with a publisher whose previous games have not sold well? Ooh. Yes unless it's your only option, then
1: you really need their money. The, you know, and this gets back into the whole everybody situation is different. Yes, that is a red flag that, you know, they either aren't adding a lot of value to the development itself, or that they don't have a good reputation, you know, with with the public or whatever. But yes, absolutely, if you go and you start looking at you know, all of the ratings and the ratings are all bad across the, all the games. That's a warning sign. So I would avoid it if you have other options. If you don't have other options, that's when it gets diff- difficult. It's like, you know, are you going to go in and take 70, 80% or 50, 70, whatever percent of of something? Or are you going to run the risk of self-publishing and potentially getting 100% of nothing? Um, so it's, when your options are limited, it's a much tougher question to ask because yes, there's absolutely a chance that your game is going to be the one that turns this publisher around. But in, in that first wave of triage, when you're looking at partners, if they have a long track record of mediocre games, they aren't someone I would, I would prioritize.
0: Uh, yeah, that's good. But, and the, but then again, a lot of publishers, when they're first starting out, you know, they take games that may be mediocre because yep. that's, you know, that's how they got to make money. Um, so Hitoshi Kano from YouTube. I've heard about publishers blurring the line between terms like gross revenue or marketing expenses. Is there a strict definition for these terms or is it something you define in the contract?
1: So gross revenue is usually pretty simple. That is the amount of money that the publisher receives From the platform. So typically, you know, aside, you know, Epic's a little different, things like that. It's going to be the retail price minus the platform fee, whether that's 30% or 12% or whatever it is. Um, The one that gets tricky is net revenue, which is the one that comes after that. Net revenue is the amount of money that you see from the publisher once they have deducted all the stuff that they're going to deduct. And I think that's probably the bigger concern, especially when you say, you know, marketing expenses. So yes, (laughs) marketing expenses can be extremely nebulous uh, and you do have to be very careful with it. It's another one of those cases where I, I, you know, I will say it's not as bad as it used to be Um, back in the days of pre-digital, when everything had to go to a store, there was always a write-off for MDF and... Oscar, I know you're watching. If you can remember what MDF stands for, I would appreciate it. But basically what it was, was the bribe that you paid to Walmart to put you on an end cap. Um, it was a fee that was always due to the retailers. It was a bribe. Let's just call it what it is. That's basically what it was. Um, when you went to a Best Buy back in the day and there were some games that were like an eye level and some that were down on the you know first shelf from the ground. There's a reason for that when you went in GameStop and this was always my favorite because it was so obvious. They would have the top 10 games selling games this month. And like the first, second, and third games were games that hadn't been released yet. So it's like, that can't be one of the best selling because it's not literally not been sold and you're not doing that well on pre-orders. The that again was part of the MDF that the publisher paid to that um, to the publisher paid to that uh, that retail store. The other one, you know, we would have publishers come in and say, "Okay, well, our trade show expenses are part of the marketing budget," and we would go, "No, it's not," because what they would have what would happen, and again, not making this shit up, I actually saw it happening. A publisher goes to E3 with five titles. They have, of course, their flight expenses, their booth, you know, all that goes along with it, but they would credit that total expense against every single game. So they're basically quintupling whatever their budget was to to go there. Nowadays, it is a bit easier to explain marketing you know the good companies out there will have something that that says you know it needs to be marketing expenses need to be agreed upon the month before um it gets even worse with when you're talking about user acquisition on a mobile game or a free-to-play game in general because there's so much of it that has to go in there um but yes in general gross revenue is pretty much always going to be gross revenue um that's the retail minus the platform holder the net revenue is <laughs> yes calyx a party on a yacht is definitely a marketing expense good luck with that one though um the the net is going to be a little more nebulous but it basically takes out the stuff that uh you know the publisher has to recoup on or something like that because the that net is what you're going to be getting a percentage of. But when it comes down to what actually qualifies as a marketing, it's fairly common in these agreements that you know it can you can audit them. And if any contract or any publishers that doesn't give you any audit rights at all on the contract, big shady warning sign. Um, but they are in most contracts now much easier to find. Um, And always, if you, if you aren't sure, ask the publisher straight up, you know, can you outline what these marketing expenses are actually going to be and give us an estimate? Another thing that you can do is ask for a sample revenue share sheet. You want to see the, the Excel spreadsheet or whatever that that publisher is going to use to say, this is how much you get because getting a 50% rev share with some heavy-handed net revenue definition will end up getting you less money sometimes than if you're only getting 30% of you know a lighter net revenue. So you always want to see this is exactly how this is being you know accounted for and, and drawn up. Um so yeah, I hope that answers your question, Taj. And, and I think you have a new um headshot there and, and it looks great.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. What, what's next? What's next? Another one from <laughs> Nightwolf. Is it worth it to go with a publisher that brings great results but has a horrendous social media presence that brings them a lot of hate? Oh, I love God. these. Um, I hate to say it. It depends.
1: If, if this <laughs> one. This one is more of it depends on you more than anything else. If you know that this is an absolute, you know controversial, hated publisher, but they're selling shit tons of units. That's a, that's a you question. Are you willing to be associated with that publisher knowing you're going to get paid more or are you willing to, you know, step back and go, okay, we're not going to be dealing with this. I don't want to be mixed in with that. And we might make a little less because of it. That is really a question to you because, trust me, I have seen it both ways. I have done both types of deals. Um, Games that I knew were going to get shitted on in the press, and they made boatloads of money, you know, and some that I was just like, you know what, it's not worth me attaching my name or our client's name to this, and we're just, we're not going to do it. Um, It's always tougher to make those decisions when the publishers are, like, really successful at what they do. (laughs)
0: don't <laughs> okay here we go would publishers agree to a contract where the percentage of a revenue share is tied to the amount of wish lists upon release he,
1: who had that that's a really good question where did that come uh, from
0: that came from discord i wasn't able to get the name in there because it wasn't too much text
1: that's oh, um, r- real quick, Oscar says, I think MDF was minimum development fund. The other one was minimum revenue guarantee. No, I'm thinking it was like marketing development funds because it was something that was actually paid directly to
0: Walmart, basically. All right. This um, question was from Fox, Foxition, follow the feather, fe- follow the feathers. That's hard to say. Foxition, follow the feathers. Tongue tied.
1: All right. So that is a, a, a super good Wait, Leave that up there. Cause I still have to, I, I have to read that. Um, that's a okay. really, really good question because that's one of those. I've never done that in a contract, but um, it's a, it could be a really good way of, and, and my publisher clients are going to cringe when I say this of, you know, showing the ability of that publisher. You know, if you have 10,000 wish lists when you sign with the publisher and then, Six months later, when the game actually releases, you only have 15,000 wish lists. They didn't add as much value to that as somebody who may have bumped you up to a hundred thousand wish lists. Now, keep in mind, it is just one factor of the whole thing. Wish lists are not the end-all be-all of you know the success of a game. You know, we're seeing especially bigger games, that window of announcement getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's it's not going to work in every case, and it should be one of the tools in the toolbox. But honestly, I haven't seen that yet, but it's not a bad idea I mean, because what you're doing is holding the publisher accountable to their side of the agreement for you know promoting and getting the community interested in your game.
0: Ready for the next one? Yeah. All right, well, I I'm really just like po- I'm posting emotes in chat, so give me a second. Hold on. No, um, <laughs> we'll, so let's pull up one from chat. Um, how do you do market research for your game? I've heard it should be the publisher's job, and I've heard it should be the the India studio does that. That's from Swaggy Sean.
1: It's which... both your jobs, that's the bottom line. Both the, of the and, and the beauty of this is we actually had. Carl uh, from VG Insights on here, if you go back in the archives of the, of the YouTube page or well, it will not be on Twitch, but it'll be on the YouTube page for sure. And probably on the Facebook page, there's a article. I mean, there's a whole show that we did on how you do market research for your games. In essence, what you want to do is very similar to if you've ever bought a house or you see how a real estate agent works, at least in the US, they um they always have comps. So when they're selling your house, they'll be like, OK, well, here's another house that has the same similar square footage and features and it's in your area and it's sold for this amount. So this is what we should sell yours at. You basically want to look at the different games that match up to your genre and platform, but do not go into it and say, hey, we're making this open world action RPG, and this is how many units Breath of the Wild sold, and this is how many units you know, Skyrim sold, so this is how many units we think that we're going to sell. No. That's not re- realistic. You need to make sure that you're targeting games that are realistic. you know. And you always want a, a low, medium, and a high. But that high shouldn't be Breath of the Wild. That high should be something indie-related that's a little more realistic on, on what you're doing. But the publisher, whether the publisher shows it to you or not, a good publisher is already doing this. You know, that, and, and I see it because we do it for publishers. You know, we sit down, we look at a game, we go, okay, here's the comps, and we have this entire spreadsheet that that Patrick, God bless him, understands way more about spreadsheets than Excel than I do. Uh, but he puts this together for our clients, and it's like, here, look, here's the comps on all these games, and there'll be twenty or twenty-five games in there that he, he comps it against, but. The, the good publishers are already doing that anyway. They know what the market potential of your game is because they have to factor that into you know all of their profitability spreadsheets as well. But as the developer, it's absolutely your job too. So you can understand is your budget realistic? And that's another good talk um, that's in from one of our past conferences uh where Kimberly Rodatos um and I'm always afraid I'm crucifying Kimberly's name when I say that. But um where Kimberly did a whole session on how to make sure that your budget is reasonable and it's it's realistic. But it's it's everybody's job. But you know I would absolutely say, you know, to the publisher, what are you looking at in terms of you know comparisons for this game versus what we're looking at? Um, but it's it's a it's a really good tool to put in your pitch deck too. It's like, you know, look here's whatever those little square charts are called (laughs) it's like there's four quadrants but having that in there and and demonstrating to the publisher that you know what you're talking about and you have looked into this too it's a really good tool to so they understand that you're serious and you know what you're doing right on
0: right on uh lucky here's a comment uh from discord if yeah if you for example need 300k from a publisher what would be a reasonable percentage
1: so it's hard to say without knowing what your total budget is that's that's a quick way of looking at it if your budget is a million dollars and the publisher is investing you know 300k you can adjust it you know that way if the publisher's paying for the entire project it's a little different um we've had i've had developers come to us and say, well, we want 300,000 and we're going to keep 80% of the revenue share. And that's the pitch that they give to the to the publisher. And the publisher is like, I don't think that's overly realistic right now, but it's going to depend on how badly you need that deal. It's going to depend on how badly that publisher wants to work with you. Um, But anytime there is a advance, and I'm going to say development advance because there's a difference between, you know, what we call a minimum guarantee and a development advance. A so development advance means they're paying you based on milestones, so you can finish the game. I.e., without that 300k, your game's not going to go to market at all. You're not going to be able to finish it. The other side of it is a minimum guarantee, where going back to that market research thing, the publisher can sit down and on their PL spreadsheet and say. I think we're going to sell 200,000 copies of this stuff. So they'll come and basically guarantee you a safe bet of that 75,000, 100,000 copies sold, and they prepay you. And you basically don't get paid again until you burned through that whole, you know, it's, it's an advanced royalty. They're basically just giving you their ro- your royalties in advance because they're very confident in the game. That's a different situation that in that case, you don't necessarily need that money to finish the game. It's more of a demonstration of the publisher's faith in the title. Um, But again, it it really it's going to come down to if the publisher is not paying for the entire game. You know, I would start it somewhere around 50 50 but it's it's hard for say because you know i need to look at the game i need to look at your options i need to look at a whole bunch of other stuff um i wish i could give you a better answer on that but it really does it just comes down to a whole lot of
0: factors a ton a whole lot of factors all right let's see let's pull one up from let's pull one up from the chat here from hitoshi from youtube some publishers say you keep your ip but we get right a first refusal for your next game or we get to decide if the DLC is done with someone else. How far should we stretch for control over here?
1: No publisher should be having a game or content developed for your game that you're not involved in. So, one, we don't have that many publishers anymore that are coming in and demanding IP. You know, they are going, and this is one of the things I wanted to touch on later on, you know, the signs that, you know it's not a bad publisher it's just something scary in the contract that that you know you, you may not have seen before or you may not understand a publisher is always going to have to have the option the right to license your ip legally they can't sell it without that because they would be promoting and selling something that is based on a trademark that they don't own nor have the license to use and that's legal legal jeopardy um, I have not seen that many contracts, even in the last 10 years where the publisher came in and said, we flat out own the IP. Um, That's very much a thing of years past. Now they are gonna need to license it. And they may, the clause that says, you know, that deals with sequels and spinoffs and DLC and all that other stuff. What that clause typically says is that, you know, they have the first right to publish it and to distribute it, which is fair. And which realistically, if it was, if the game did well enough that it justifies ongoing DLC and live ops or sequels or whatever, nine times out of ten, you've had a good enough relationship with that publisher that you're, you're going to want to continue with it. Um, giving them the the first look at it is often, quite frankly, beneficial to both of you. The some publishers will have a last match. That's where it gets dicey because if they put out the they give you an offer and then you say, Well, I'm not sure I like that offer. I want, you know, you've exercised your right of first look, but we want to look around. When you start going to all the other publishers, all your other options, and they ask, Well, why isn't so-and-so doing this first game? I mean, why isn't so-and-so doing this game because they did the first one and you say, well, they've got a last match clause. That's going to kill your deals because publishers know that. That's why they put them in there. Last match means you can go out and shop it. But if somebody offers you a deal, they have the ability and the legal right to basically offer you equal terms and get it. And so what every other publisher sees is, why am I going to offer you anything on this just so you can turn around and use it to go back to the original publisher and get you a good deal. So having the ability to, for a first look is a good thing. I mean, it's just typically if you're going to do it, I mean, if, if that situation is up, you've had a decent relationship with it. Um, even if they opt to go with somebody else to, you know, develop the DLC or the port. Most likely that's generally where that clause comes in. It's like, there's a port. You should still be getting money based on that. They are still developing content based on your IP. So, you know, we've done things like put a five, 10% licensing fee into it basically. Um, But typically you see that where, you know, the original studio doesn't have the capacity or the bandwidth to do a port or something like that to one of the platform. And so someone else does it. Um, but at the end of the day, unless you sold your IP over to that publisher, you should be getting at least a small piece of everything that comes from that IP because it is your, it's your intellectual property.
0: All right. Intellectual property. So here we go. If a publisher, this is from Nightwolf on Discord, if a publisher asks about your third party contracts, affiliates, influencers, or game key distribution deals, how much information should you give to them?
1: Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out when that would actually happen. One, if you have game key distribution deals, that's typically the influencers and things like that. Um, I'm just trying to think if that would mean like actual game distribution deals because that's that can get a little sketchy, but there's no reason this is the the beauty of the it depends clause and going back to the question earlier about should you have an agent or you know a specialist do this, there are so many different ways to to structure contracts. And so we've done deals where a publisher has the right to, publish the game on on Steam and the Microsoft Store, but the developer is going to be the publisher on the Epic Game Store. You know, that's a situation where that may come up if they're asking about what distribution deals you already have. It is very easy though. Um, And we've got multiple clients that have gone through this recently where they have a game out in early access and, you know, the actual publisher needs to be transferred in steam or in epics game store that's very easily done that's not something that's a a huge deal you basically have to do very little more than just sending epic an email and saying hey look we're working with this publisher and they already have a relationship with you and so we need to make them you know the actual publisher on the platform those there is no shortage of ways you could chop up and and do this sort of stuff we do deals where Territories like you know China or Japan are called out, and that publisher is only going to publish in those territories, or that publisher is going to have worldwide distribution except for those territories. When it comes down to the you know content creators and and that sort of stuff, it is generally in your best interest to work together with the publisher and It's like, if you have a better relationship with XYZ streamer than they do, maybe you talk to them. If they have one, they talk to them. It's not, it's in everybody's best interest to market the game and get the game out there and let people know the game exists. That's not an area where you want to be going head to head and arguing with, you know, a publisher or distributor, anybody, everybody wins if more people know about your game. So typically it's perfectly fine. And one of the first questions that, that, you know, we tend to get asked when we send a game, you know, to a publisher is, you know, how big of a following do they have? How big is their discord? Do they have an email mailing list? How many wish lists do they have? How many Instagram, Twitter, Facebook followers do they have? All of that is very common, you know, basis where I see uh, some publishers read that information incorrectly is if you know, we're sitting there and we're, and we're talking about a specific game and they're looking at the, the reviews of the previous game and they're like, well, you know, they only got like 90 reviews on the last game. It must not have been that good. And I'm like, no. It means they were a small studio from Brazil who self-published it, didn't have the capacity to do the things that need to be done, and that's the best they could do. It doesn't mean that it was a bad game at all. You know, it just means they weren't as good as marketing as as somebody else was. So it's always in everybody's best interest to work together on the marketing and the outreach and the content creators, and all that sort of good stuff. Um, And a good publisher will, you know, will do that and will
0: allow for that in the contract as well. Excellent. We are getting close to time. We've got like 10 minutes left, so let's get some questions in. We've got one, two, three, four right now coming up.
1: All right, hold oh, on. let me get through the rest of my quick list. Keep putting questions in.
0: Okay, questions from right. Lucky.
1: A couple of other little points it. before I completely forget on my bullet list that I made today. Um, if a publisher comes in and – it's like there's Jeff Foxworthy really things. You might be a redneck. If a publisher comes in and completely takes over your social media and starts banning people and kicking people out and taking over forums and basically scorched earthing your existing community, that's a bad sign for the very reason that I just talked about. It's in everybody's best interest to, you know, build the community and get things out there. And if they're just starting to come in and they want to one, if they want to take over your existing social media, that's a red flag because they should have their own social media that they're they're working on. They may want to work together with you on social media. Um but they shouldn't be taking over your accounts in the first place. Um, And then one, the last one I'll bring up before we get back to questions, and this is life in general. If someone says, threatens you with a lawsuit, just like kind of out of the blue or early into a discussion, that's a bad sign because 25 years of doing deals. No, they haven't all gone great. Do you know how many I've had actually go to court and get lawyers involved other than a lawyer sending an initial letter saying, whatever, you know, cease and desist, or this has come to my attention, blah, blah, blah. One. In 25 years, I have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of contracts and, you know, deals between publishers and developers. I have had exactly one actually go to court anyone who is going to sue you isn't going to necessarily warn you up front it's a tedious process it's an expensive process and quite frankly it is in everybody's best interest to settle something before it gets to that point so if you are in early stages of dealing with a publisher or a marketing firm or anyone else and something goes sideways and they start screaming that they're going to sue you and you're going to hear from their lawyer one you're probably not going to and two it's, it's it's a red flag because nobody actually wants to do that and that's one of the things that we teach in you know when we're looking at contracts with our clients and they're like well this seems sketchy for you know whatever part of the world this is in and i'm like so what are you going to do so you're gonna you know even a mid-sized studio it's not a minor process to find an attorney in another country and go after somebody. So, you know, we, we, we frequently pitch, this is the legal law law and this is the realism, you know, law of, of the situation. You're not going to go, you know, for example, a, a U.S. or Western European team is not going to just turn around and sue a Chinese publisher over something because it's not ever going to amount to anything, and it's a giant waste of money. So be wary of companies that threaten to sue you very quickly, because chances are, one, is not going to happen, and two, they're sketchy
0: in the first place. All right.
1: Sketchy in the like? first place. All
0: right. So from Lucky, should you do a Kickstarter before or after negotiating with a publisher?
1: Well, if you you shouldn't have to do one after... If the publisher is your reason for getting funding, if you are doing a Kickstarter and some some publishers do this, I mean, doing a Kickstarter for basically marketing reasons is a very viable process. And I know several publishers who do that, but that's a discussion that you have together with the publisher. (laughs) doing a kickstarter before you get a publisher is a tricky situation and and literally talked to a team about this yesterday one unless you have a very very strong community if you've watched any of our talks in the past and again they're all on the youtube page and everywhere else with with anya from kickstarter you'll know that one of the most when she first told me this it was both surprising and terrifying When you do a crowdfunding campaign, 80% of the money that you see is going to come from your existing community. Only 20, maybe 30% of the money that comes in to your Kickstarter is going to be from new people. You know, it's all going to be, for the most part, from your community. So if you don't already have a strong community, don't run a Kickstarter in the first place. Because a Kickstarter is not where you're going to magically find new community. Mm -hmm. A failed Kickstarter looks really bad. You know, when you look at how many games publishers are looking at, and I know publishers who are seeing upwards of sixty, sometimes a hundred, during peak conference times of games coming in a week. I can tell you, for the companies that we scout for, we don't have any that want to see even more than fifteen a week, because part of our job scouting is to triage a lot of stuff out of there. But you know, for small to mid-sized publishers running a green light committee and, and okaying and evaluating games is not a I mean, it's time consuming to do it right and so they're only seeing the ones that they want to see and if you go through that checklist and they start looking at all your stuff and then one of them is well they had a failed kickstarter that's not gonna remotely help your chances of, doesn't uh, of look getting good.
0: Assigned. doesn't look good All right, here we go from Rice um, from Discord. As a new unknown studio, how important is it to show actual public interest in your game to impress a publisher? A lot.
1: Mm, um, It is very, very key. It helps your case exponentially. You know, you should, the, the minute, and we talked about this before, the minute you have something to show, a screenshot, GIF, whatever, you need to have that on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever, and be building that community and pointing them back ideally to a Discord server where you can have your whole community, keep them engaged and use them to further evangelize and engage other people in your game. You know, that is one of the things that we look at primarily, not primarily, one of the core things that we look at when we're looking at titles for our clients, what is the community reaction so far? Is that fair? No, it's not. Because, I, you know, we also see a lot of games that are really good, but that developer doesn't have the bandwidth to go out and do all this sort of stuff. So, no, they don't have the buzz already. That's a different situation. That requires a, a good publisher or a good scout or a good consulting firm that sees through a lot of that stuff. But one of the factors that a publisher is going to look at is how much interest have you built up in the game already. That's why we say it never, ever, ever hurts to build up your community early on because either the passion and the size of that community is going to help you find a publisher because the publisher can look at this game and go, okay, there's already strong interest in it or the worst case scenario, if you have to go and self publish that community is your starting point. So it's, it's very important to go out there and start doing this stuff and getting some hype up, before you start talking to publishers so you can show, yes, there is a desire, there is a, a want for this type of game.
0: Right, and so, so this is a follow-up and there's some more other comments with it as well For from Lucky to build on the above question. How big of a community do you need to impress a publisher as a first-time studio? And then Merle in Discord says, is it more than 1,000 members on Discord and 10K followers on Twitter?
1: It, it, it's hard to say it's like that old definition of porn. It's like, I can't describe it, but you're going to know when you see it. Um, Every publisher is going to have their own threshold. I can tell you it is a lot easier to get somebody's attention if you say, this game already has 10,000, 50,000 lists, whatever that may be. Um, But there's not necessarily a cutoff point that publishers look at the point where there is cutoffs that publishers look at is if they're looking at KPIs on existing tests for mobile games, then you start getting into a a couple of of hard lines of, you know, we want to see this much engagement day one, day seven, day three, whatever they use. Obviously the answer is going to be the more the better, but I have yet to come across a publisher who says, well, we're not going to pick up that title. Because they only have nine thousand people on their, you know, their Twitter following, there are a lot of publishers out there who see the fact that you don't have a lot as a good thing. If they can go in and they've identified this as something that that you know is new and unique and and this could be really awesome, then you get on the flip side of that where it's like they want to grab it because no one else knows it's out there yet and it hasn't, you know every other publisher in the world isn't going for it as well. Um, There's not necessarily a hard number. Uh, look Look at your peers in the industry and benchmark it. That's the easiest thing to do. Almost everybody has a Discord server these days. Almost everybody has Twitter and Instagram followers. Look at developers at, you know, the same stage that you're at. Don't go and look at, you know, somebody who you know has has released their game and they have tons of followers and it was a big success look at you know your peer your true peers in the industry and benchmark yourself there you know at, at this stage of development with this size team with this experience as a studio this is what we have versus this is what other similar developers have um do that don't worry about you know honest to god like thresholds of of numbers because that's not something that ever really comes up
0: right on, we're getting close here you guys actually we are over time but that's okay we've got more questions uh gram of legend question is it normal for a publisher to want to change your already marketed game ip to an ip that they own and is that okay
1: i wouldn't say it's normal that much anymore but it's not unheard of you know the question that you need to ask yourself is is that other IP going to help us sell more units than ours will? Typically, if a publisher is asking to do that, they feel strongly that that IP, that they're going to apply to it, is is going to be a big benefit. Because it's not a trivial thing. It's not like you can just go in there and change the title screen and some character names and ta-da, you're all of a sudden in the Fallout world. It's a lot of work to go in and make a transition like that. And yes, I've seen it. Yes, we've done it on, on projects. But typically, the only time that's going to come up is if it is a very powerful IP that is really going to benefit all parties involved. Um, so yeah, it's done. and it, it, But I wouldn't say it's normal because it's really not that, much, that normal anymore. Because I mean, think about it. If all the games get released every week. You know, there's only a certain number of those that are real honest to god certifiable franchises that have you know big ips attached to them so um yes it's done not necessarily normal but you know if they want to do it there's generally a really good reason for for going in and you know and, and wanting to do that because it's a lot of work to do properly now if they want to come in and slap an ip on it and not do any changes there's your warning sign you know it saying that from a guy who was a large part of a whole ton of gba and nintendo ds licensed mainly children's licensed crap where <laughs> that's what we did was we came in and basically stuck an ip on top of an existing game and yeah it did it did impress it, you know the sales did get better but it you know
0: it's a lot of work to do it properly all right, we're going to get into some Steam page stuff here. Um, I've heard a lot about getting Steam page up early for marketing and community reasons. Would having the page up beforehand be a deal killer for publishers? Honestly, I've heard publishers say yes and publishers say no. So that's my probably a question.
1: <laughs> and it's like you can go back on this show six months a year, and somebody asked me that same question, and my answer is going to be different. The what we're seeing right now in the industry. It's not going to hurt you that much to have a steam page up with a wish list option. I haven't seen that many publishers come out and say it has a wish list page, we don't want to work with it. What happens is when you start selling it. That's the problem. And when you st- I, we absolutely have publishers who don't want to look at anything that is already in early access because they feel that the initial marketing opportunity on that game is gone. They can't you know do anything about it and help position it and help promote it. and they just don't want to touch it. So my advice as of last of October 1st of November 2021 is yeah, you're fine to have a, a wish list and that's good because you're building you know strength in your in your brand and getting awareness out there. I would not, if you plan on going to a publisher, I would not start selling it in early access yet though. And I know that's tough because a lot of times developers only you know, start selling something in early access because they need the money. But the minute you start selling the game in early access, you're going to lose about 50% of your possible publishers.
0: Yeah, so here's regarding the Steam page and I think I have a question to ask Lucky back. The question is should I have a good trailer for the game before making a Steam page for it? And yes. my question back to you is why would you make a place for people to go if they you're you're not going to show them anything? Right?
1: You should absolutely have a good trailer and you should absolutely find somebody of the appropriate skill level that you can afford to create said trailer.
0: I, I've seen yes. trailers on Steam and then it has like the whatever logo of the the cheap video capture program, whatever in the trailer. And that's not very appealing.
1: It's not appealing, but I mean, if it, if it's effective, it's effective, right? You know, but videos are very much that foot in the door thing now with publishers. You know they want to see a a video to see if it looks appealing. then they want to look at a pitch deck. Or they want to look at a pitch deck that has a video in it and then they want to play it. So yes, you should always, whenever you're doing that outward facing promotion of the game, you always need to have your best possible foot forward. And so it's one thing on, on, on social media and like screenshot Saturday or wishlist Wednesday or whatever the fuck Tuesday we're doing. I don't know. Taco Tuesday. Uh-huh. It's a, you can have earlier stage or rougher looking stuff there because you can preface it's like, hey, look, this is very early, but this is what we're working on. But when you go to that step of having an actual honest-to-God Steam page uh, or itch page or whatever page, you want your best-looking stuff there because where people will easily forgive you on social media if it's not completely polished and, and gorgeous-looking,
0: they ain't going to forgive you much on Steam. Right. Lucky says, what I mean is, should I use the gameplay footage I have or wait? and create a much better trailer. I would say for Steam, right? When people go to Steam and they look at videos, they don't want to look at a trailer. They want to see gameplay. At least yes. I know I do. I will go through, bam, the first thing I do is, how's this play? And then I look at the Steam video. And if it's a bunch of not gameplay stuff, I might just pass that game, mm-hmm. right? So they want to see gameplay.
1: Calyx, I just discovered Turn-Based Thursdays yesterday, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, But yeah, that's just one of our basic trailer tips. Start with the gameplay. You know, what is it Facebook says that we've had an engagement if somebody watches six seconds of a video, that's how long you have to capture that person's interest. And if you spend the first five seconds of that popping a bunch of, you know, developer logos logos and all that sort of shit up there, no. No.
0: Just immediately into jump gameplay. into gameplay. Don't put, put logos later. Just like, bam. Or gameplay. overlay it.
1: You know, the, look at so some of the best examples of eye-catching and quick to suck you in videos are on like the Apple App Store. You know, they have very quick videos on there and then they overlay the features that they are showing in the gameplay. And that is extremely effective. But
0: that's what people think about when you are browsing through Steam for games, what you are doing, right? And then because that's what people do. They look at it. They go to the game page. The first thing they do is look at the video. They don't read the description or the lore or any of that stuff. Yes, people care about that, but they want to see the gameplay and then they'll watch it for like 10 seconds. And that's really it. That's the deciding factor right there. Hold on. Yeah. Oscar, I just, I I just saw this comment
1: from, from Div. He says, hey, let's do your game, but using Star Wars. That's not necessarily the dream if, if they want you to do a you know Sims version of the Jar Jar Banks family. I mean, remember
0: I would play that.
1: Uh, all IPs have a bad side. There's that's in all of them.
0: I would play that game. Jar Jar Beaks. Jar Jar Beaks Thursday.
1: All right, there was another one from, from Calix about Exolva. I got you. Okay. Uh, I was yep. listening to Justin say they might see more now how devs deal with the after release like devs looking ahead and knowing all that work of art. Yes, and I can actually add my own an- anecdote into that. It is extremely important that you have a post launch strategy planned. We were looking at comparables this week for a game that one of our publishers is interested in picking up and we noticed that one of the comparables had like over 10,000 reviews on steam and it was like all very positive. And then above it, it was like the recent reviews were mixed and there was, I don't know, 80 to hundred, maybe a little more. And I'm like, that's weird. You don't necessarily see that in that order. You might see, Total reviews be mixed and then the more recent ones be very good because they've done something. When we started going through the the different posts and, and the reviews, it was getting review bombed because the developers were not still putting content out for a $15 game over a year later after launch. That's a little excessive. know in terms of the reviews coming in that heavy-handed on that. But what it says and what it shows is that consumers are looking at these things as long-term projects. And you read through those reviews and the people are like, well this this game's dead. It's not dead. There's a shitload of content that was made. You just got through it all and now you're mad there's not anymore. That doesn't necessarily make the game dead. But not only you know consumers are looking for this they want to know that there's a a long tail of content planned for the game. And because of that, publishers are looking at it. And so they want to make sure that you have a long tail of content, at least planned and understanding. And so when you're going in and doing your budget, yes, you should say, hey, here are, you know, here's the budget that we need to get to launch. And then these are our estimations on what the cost of ongoing content might be. And, And either that... It doesn't necessarily need to be full-blown live ops where you're, you know, running a game as a service. It could be content drops, you know, every couple of months or something like that. But you absolutely do need to be planning ahead and showing that you have at least thought through what's happening after launch.
0: What what those reviews show, the review bombing show, bless you, is that uh, people really liked the game and they were ticked off when they... Yeah, it does. I mean, it really <laughs> does,
1: but it's also very shitty of the of the consumers to be doing that because it's like
0: Yeah, you know, untapped potential, as Oscar Clark says. It's a <laughs> it's a missed opportunity, is what that is.
1: We don't have to get into you know some of my anger at, at gamers in general sometimes, right. but yeah, that's one of them. What what else have we got? Have we got anything that's else?
0: That's it. That's where we hit all the questions.
1: Awesome. All right, so bottom line takeaway on all of this at the end of the day do your research make sure that when you're talking to a publisher you are looking into who they've worked with contacting those people do not ask a publisher for references that's like you know an employer asking you for references do you give them the reference of the boss that you know you told to f off and stormed out of his office and slammed the door last time no you give them references that are your friends and sometimes your family always make sure you're doing your own research look into the companies that this you know publisher has worked with look into the individuals at that company that different studios have worked with and find out who you're going to be working with um, because it's very very rare that you can do a proper amount of research and still end up getting screwed it's not impossible it happens but you're you're not going to help yourself and i I do realize that sometimes it's tough when you've worked on a project for two or three years and you're not getting any interest in it from the publishing community in general and then one publisher is all that interested and you may look into it and they go well they're a little they've done some iffy things here and there but they're my only option sometimes your better option is nothing you know do your research, you know, look into it, make sure you know who you're getting into bed with and, and why. And that's that's all I'm going to rant about today. We can, yeah, we're good.
0: That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And make sure uh, we got a lot of people on Discord already. You can join our Discord at discord.gg slash indie game business. And we got an upcoming event from December 1st through December 3rd. You want to talk about that, Jay?
1: Yes. So um, we've already got a, a load of good developers in there. We are anticipating this is going to be the best collection of indie games uh, we've ever had, honestly, yes. at, at one of these events. And so you know, to all of our developer friends out there, don't look at that as competition. Look at that as a good thing, because the more good games that we have, the, the more good publishers that are going to come in there and, and, and look at it. And That's we've right. also already got a lot of speakers lined up we're still finalizing all of that but as usual we're gonna have two three days of wonderful speakers that are completely free uh, just sign up that way you get the all if you sign up and get a ticket for the free ticket we automatically send you all the slide decks and all the stuff that goes along with it um, but if you want to just wa- you know watch along then you don't need to do that um, but yeah coming up in in just about a month.
0: Yeah.
1: Our ninth event. We have literally been doing these longer than anyone else in the industry has.
0: That's crazy. And happy pumpkin day. Yes. Yeah. All right. See you guys later. See have you have a great one. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business. business.